tonight before we launch into this subject, could I ask you to just bow your heads with me as we open with a word of prayer? Father in heaven, this evening as we study the Bible together, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be here. We pray that you would guide our understanding so that we might grasp what is happening not only in, in this planet and the events that are shaping what seems to be a irref, uh, irreversible future, but also what is going on in heaven at this time. So guide our understanding now, for we ask this in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So do you remember the subject that we covered on our first night together? We saw the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember this? And I'm not going to keep going over this, but it was a review of the succession of kingdoms. We talked a little bit about, we saw Babylon, you know, Persia, Greece, Rome. Rome was divided. Yesterday evening, we learned a little bit about a new chapter in the book of Daniel that also covered a similar sequence. Not the same, but similar. Do you remember yesterday we saw a ram? Coming from the west, do you remember this? It had two horns. One was higher than the other. High one came up last. That, the Bible told us, was a symbol of Medo-Persia. We also saw there was a he-goat. This he-goat didn't even touch the ground. It collided with the ram. This he-goat, the Bible told us in Daniel 8, verse 21, that it was the king of Greece, right? And we talked about that. Then we saw there was a little horn. And in the first phase of the little horn, it conquered like earthly conquest. Went this way and this way and this way. But then in verse 10 of Daniel 8, the Bible says that the little horn began to fight against heaven. So we saw there was two phases of Rome that were described here. One that had earthly ambitions, the other one that wanted to try to usurp or to fight against God. And we learned yesterday that after this little horn, the Bible described not a kingdom. There was no horns mentioned, but it described an event. It said after 2,300 days, then what would happen? The sanctuary would be cleansed. And we talked yesterday about what this cleansing of the sanctuary had to deal with. First of all, we learned that the angel actually said, the angel Gabriel said, this part of the vision is for the time of the, what everybody? Time of the end. And we learned that that phrase, the time of the end, it cannot be used interchangeably with the end of time. It's not the same. I mentioned if you drop a giant boulder, when you let go of the boulder, that's the time of the end. It is going to be a, a, foregone conclusion of what's going to happen. It's going to drop and it's going to cause destruction. When the boulder hits the ground, we could call that being the end of time. But I want to distinguish between these two events because the angel says that once this 2300 days culminates and the sanctuary is cleansed, this begins the time of the end. We also learned yesterday that the angel also told us that this particular vision would be for an appointed time. And I, I shared with you that in the New Testament, the Bible specifically points to this appointed time as being connected to the judgment. This was just a little bit of a review of what we covered last night. So tonight, what I want to do is I want to just focus on this last part of this expression, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. So here's the clues of what we know about it. It's connected to the time of the end. It's connected to an appointed time. And in this period, the Bible says that this event would take place, the cleansing of the sanctuary. So in order to explain this in more depth tonight, I'm going to give you a little overview. This is a very simple overview of what happened in the sanctuary service during the time of Israel. So do you remember I shared with you that in those days, God appointed them to build a sanctuary, and if somebody sinned, there was a procedure that God had them go through, and this is how it worked. If a man sinned, he had to bring a substitute. It could be a, depending on the type of transgression, it could be a lamb. Uh, sometimes it could be a goat. It could be other things if you were poor. But the idea was you had to bring some kind of a substitute. We'll just use the example of a lamb. So the man comes to the sanctuary. He brings the lamb. And when he brings the lamb, he waits his turn because, remember, there was maybe... 2 million people that left Egypt at the time of the Exodus. So when it was his turn, the priest would invite him to come into the courtyard where in front of the altar of burnt offering, they would perform a little ritual. Now, please understand that it would, defer, it would, it would be a little different depending on, sometimes you could bring like grains and things. But anyway, by and large, the way that the program worked was like this. When the sinner brought the substitute, the priest would 
have the sinner put his hands on the head of the substitute. Are you with me so far? So the sinner brings the substitute. The priest directs him to place his hands. Why? Because in the symbolic imagery of what God was trying to teach, your hands represent your actions. Does that make sense? Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all thy might. Does that make sense? So he placed his hands, and in a symbol, uh, he would confess his sins over the head of the animal. In a symbol, it showed that my sin is being transferred from me to the what? To the substitute. Does that make sense? So now, here is this, this sinner bringing this sin that it was on him. When he places his hands and confesses it in a symbol, it transferred to the substitute. What happens next? The priest would hand him a knife. Now, this is important for you to notice. It's not that the, the priest killed it. The priest would hand the sinner a knife, and he would slit the animal's throat. This was to teach that my sin caused the death of the substitute. Does that make sense? Next, the priest would have a bowl, and he would catch in that bowl some of the blood that dripped out of the substitute. Are you with me so far? Now, this is going to sound a little odd, but I need to make this clear for you. When the sin goes from the sinner to symbolically transfers to the substitute, where do you think it went? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. It says that the life of the flesh is in its blood. Does that make sense? So, don't miss the symbolism. The sin went from the sinner to the substitute, but where did it go in the substitute? Where did it go? It went in the blood. Does that make sense? That was a symbol for the life of the animal. And so now the priest would catch not all, just some of the blood, but what was in the blood? The sin. Does that make sense? Now, so here's what happens next. The priest, nobody else, not the sinner, the priest, he would walk into this part of the tabernacle. The, the, the regular common sinner couldn't go in here. He had to have someone to atone for him. Does that make sense? So he went into this part, and do you see there's this article of furniture called the altar of incense? Right in front of that, there was a veil. And, you know, in our modern society, like you, you go to some people's houses and they have these like thick curtains. That's... That's the closest thing that I can come up with. The, the, the veil in the sanctuary was much thicker. Scholars say that the thickness of the veil was about four to six inches or the width of a man's hand. Does that make sense? And it was that way because, for one thing, it was woven out of linen. It was embroidered with angels in gold. But it was done that way because for 359 days out of the year, the priest would take his finger, he would dip it in the bowl. What was in the bowl? Blood. What was in the blood? The sin. And he would sprinkle it on the curtain, the veil, seven times. Now, you already know what the number seven means, right? What does it mean? Perfection, completion, right? So it showed, now please don't miss this. It showed that there was a record of sin in the sanctuary. Are you with me? Now, I got to make this distinction because the sin was recorded there in the sanctuary, but it was covered by the blood, which means that it was forgiven. Does that make sense? But don't miss this. It was still there. It was there. It was just covered, right? So once a year, they had a totally different service. Once a year, they did something completely different. On this one day out of the year, and by the way, just so that you knew that day was coming, they blew trumpets for 10 days, okay? It was called the Day of Atonement. And for those of you that might be interested, for, for, for Jewish people that celebrate these seven annual feasts, tomorrow is the Day of Atonement, okay? <laughs> it just so happens that our seminar lined up this way. But anyway... The priest on this day did something completely different. They killed a goat, and when they killed the goat, it had nothing confessed on it. He captured some of the blood, and this time he went into the most holy place. 
only one article of furniture there. And yesterday I explained a little bit of the symbolism behind this article of furniture. On the top of the Ark of the Covenant, you had two angels who veiled their wings over this brightness. The Bible doesn't mention this, but Jewish history says that this was the visible manifestation of God's presence. They called it the Shekinah glory. And it was no joke. You already know that in the Bible, there were people who, if they touched the ark, what happened to them? They got killed. It was not a joke. Like, you could not go into that room with unconfessed sins. Why? Because the Bible says our God is a consuming fire. God's presence consumes sin. Does that make sense? On the inside of the ark, there was a main cabinet, and that main cabinet held the Ten Commandments that were written by God's finger from tables that Moses had carved out. Does that make sense? And if you read Romans 7, verse 7, Paul makes it clear that the law is simply to point out what sin is. He didn't know what sin was until he saw the law. Now, between those two things, there's almost no hope for the sinner because the law will point out your sin and the presence of God will just burn you up. But thankfully, there was something right in the middle. And Paul refers to this in Romans 3.25 when he talks about Christ is the propitiation. The word propitiation is translated in your margin. It's translated as the mercy seat. In other words, in the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat was a symbol for Jesus. Can you say amen to that? But notice once a day, once a year, I should say, once a year, in this Jewish festival called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the priest took this blood from a goat that had no sins confessed on it. He carried it into the most holy place. And there he sprinkled the blood seven times on the mercy seat. What did it do? Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but we know that the Jews would take down the veil and put up a new one. Okay? Now, all of this has some point or meaning in the plan of salvation. Now, this verse simply tells us that God was supposed to dwell between those cherubims. Now, did you know, and this is kind of a side note, but we're going to touch on this later on in the seminar, Satan was once one of the two angels that stood next to God's throne and veiled his glory. You can read this. You can check this in the book of Ezekiel. I believe it's chapter, oh no, Isaiah, there's chapter 26 and Ezekiel 28. Both of these chapters talk about Satan being what's called the covering cherub. So we'll, we'll, we're going to talk about that a little bit later on in the seminar, but he once had the privilege of being one of these angels before he fell. Now, the Bible does give us another insight about this particular uh, symbolism because the Bible tells us that in heaven, notice this, then the temple of God was opened where? In heaven. So please understand that everything that Moses and the children of Israel did in the earthly sanctuary it, I know this sounds strange, but it was fake. It didn't do anything. If an animal's blood could atone for you, then you could just kill enough animals and, and, and have salvation. Does that make sense? It was just to teach something. And what was it to teach? That there was a heavenly temple, and the lamb symbolized Christ. The high priest symbolized Christ. It was designed to show what God was doing in the great plan of salvation. Now, please understand that when you go through the book of Revelation, again and again, you will find evidence that there is a literal sanctuary in heaven. Notice that it says, in the midst of the seven, what? Lampstands. What part of the sanctuary on earth was the seven lampstands? Where was that? That was where? In the holy place, right? When you walked into the tabernacle, you would see on the left side, there would be the seven branch candlesticks, right? But when you go through Revelation, you will also see that Jesus is described as a lamb as though it had been what? Slain. So do you understand that that, again, typifies in the courtyard, there was the altar of burnt offering, and that's where they slew the animal, and then, of course, they offered it as a burnt offering before God. When you continue in the book of Revelation, you'll see that there's an angel that has a golden what? Censer, and he came and stood at the? Altar, that's talking not about the altar of burnt offering, but that's talking about the altar right before that veil, which is the altar of incense in the holy place. And then when you keep going through Revelation, you'll find that another angel comes out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap for the what, everybody? The harvest of the earth is what? Right. Now, if you remember from our topic last night, I shared with you that 
in the Jewish festivals, there were seven annual feasts that they held. You remember this? I shared this yesterday. So it starts with Passover. Passover is when you had the reminder of God's deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. But do you remember, in order to be delivered, they had to put the blood above their doorpost. Where did they get the blood from? A lamb, right? They had to kill a lamb. So that was the symbolism of the death of Christ. Does that make sense? The very next day, they had something called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that feast was designed to remove all leaven from their dwellings. What was it to teach? It was to teach that Christ wants you to to get rid or he wants to take the sin out of your life. Does that make sense? And then the very next day after that, the third day after the the, um, Passover lamb was sacrificed, they had something called the first fruits. They went into the fields and they picked the first most ripe grains And they offered it to God as a thanksgiving for the harvest that was going to come. Does that make sense? Now, please don't miss this. When the Bible in Revelation 14 talks about the harvest of the earth is ripe, this is, again, sanctuary language because this evokes the imagery of Christ who is our first fruits. So, again, this also evokes that sanctuary language which can only be understood. Let me finish this. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And then the Bible tells us, and see, I'm showing this to you because I want you to understand that it's not just in one section of the Bible. Over and over and over again, we see evidence that there is a literal temple in heaven. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the, what everybody? Filled the temple. So again, Isaiah describes seeing the heavenly sanctuary there in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. So yesterday I also showed you that there was a few more feasts, and I'm going to touch on these briefly. I've covered the first three. Fifty days after they left Egypt, they had a, a, a ceremony on Mount Sinai where God gave them the Ten Commandments, and that was considered or that was commemorated in a feast called Pentecost. Now, in the New Testament, and I'm sure you remember this, in Acts chapter 2, this was the time when God, through the manifestation of his spirit, spoke to all of those people about the gospel in their native language. Do you remember hearing that? And so this, again, was kind of like a, this was a celebration of the harvest after it had been already gathered, okay? So the first fruits was the harvest is coming. Pentecost was, we've gathered the harvest, and Lord, we are thankful to you for the harvest that you have given us. But then, those four ceremonies were just in the spring. You had a long break in the summer, and then you had three more feasts in the fall. And the three in the fall were very simple. You had one called the trumpets, Feast of Trumpets. For 10 days, they blew trumpets all day. And, you know, I thought to myself, God really must have wanted their attention. If you blew a trumpet all day for one day, that would get my attention, okay? But they did it for 10 days. Why? Because there was a day called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, if you, they, you didn't have to work, you didn't have to do anything. Everybody gathered around the tabernacle, everybody. And I want to show you what it looked like. Um, it's in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 33. It says, then he shall make atonement for the holy what? Okay, now let's pause for a moment. Why would the sanctuary need atoning? Why would it need cleansing? Well, I shared with you earlier that day after day, for 359 days out of the year, what kept going in and being recorded in the sanctuary? What kept going in? The sin, the record of sin. So on this one day, they performed this service where all of the sins that had accumulated in the sanctuary, they were recorded, all of them were now wiped out. The term that the Bible uses is blotted out, okay? Now, I want to just remind you that this, again, it prefigures what Christ was going to do for his people. As our high priest, Christ was also going to make an atonement during this special festival called, the, in the annual service, it was called the Day of Atonement. By the way, there was one more festival that I didn't mention. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. And what that was is the Israelites, they would go out 
and they would dwell in like little man-made shelters, these booths. And that was to symbolize, of course, when Jesus comes back and takes his people, that he will dwell with them together. Does that make sense? So if you really look at the whole seven feasts, they teach the plan of salvation centered around Jesus. Does that make sense? That's what that was for. It wasn't designed because those things had any merit on their own. And here's what it says about Jesus and his high priestly ministry. But into the second part, the high priest went alone, how many times? Once a year, not without blood, which means he was carrying what? He had blood, right? Which he offered for himself and for the people's sins. Now, I want to give you the practical application of how this happened. Do you remember that when Jesus died, there was a veil in Jerusalem of a temple that was ripped apart? Do you remember this? And did you notice that the Bible is specific? It says that it was ripped from how to how? Top to bottom. Now, remember I told you how thick the veil was? So I have some clothes that are made out of linen. I think I have like one shirt that's made out of linen. And, you know, I'm guessing there's probably nobody here that if I gave it to you, you could like rip it with your bare hands. It's very thin. But linen is actually pretty strong. Ladies, if you have clothes that are, you know, it's not a weak fabric. But if it was four to six inches thick, there is not a human being alive today that could rip that apart. Do you understand that? So this was a divine event. And you know, this curtain, don't forget this, it separated the most holy place from the holy place. Why? Because God's presence, that Shekinah glory, it couldn't be viewed by human eyes. Now, when the temple in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus was constructed, the Ark of the Covenant during Jeremiah's time had already been secreted and, and hidden. So no, there was no Ark of the Covenant there. But the point that I'm getting at is that this, temp, this veil being ripped, it symbolized that the earthly sanctuary service was now done. Now think about that. As Christians today, why don't we sacrifice lambs? Because Jesus died. That was the true lamb of God. Does that make sense? Which means that the earthly sanctuary service was terminated, but the lessons and the truths that it taught are now being fulfilled in the reality of the heavenly sanctuary. Does that make sense? Now, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 9, for Christ has not entered the, has not entered the holy places made with hands. In other words, not by human hands, which are copies of the True. Again, again, the Bible is emphasizing there is a real heavenly sanctuary, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now, folks, tonight I want us to talk a little bit about the, the specifics of when does this cleansing of the sanctuary take place. And I want to bring you back to this passage. For he said unto me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be what? Cleansed. I, before I explain this, I have to just say one more thing. On the Day of Atonement, God had a way. If you hadn't confessed all of your sins and they weren't on the substitute, which ended up being recorded by the blood into the sanctuary, where were the sins still? It was still on you, right? And so the point was on that day, if in that vast multitude of 2 million or 3 million people, if someone hadn't confessed all their sins... They cast lots. There was 12 tribes. They would pick a tribe. Then they would pick one of the hundreds of families. They would pick one family. Then they would go through all the people. And the point is that God would single out those people, and they would be taken out, and they would be forced to leave the camp of Israel never to return. They probably would end up dying. Now, I have to say that because the Day of Atonement was a day of judgment. It was a day that the Israelites associated with you have to get your life right, otherwise you will be cut off from the people, okay? So when we talk about the cleansing of the sanctuary, we talked about this yesterday. It was a time of judgment, okay? Now, the Bible actually does not give us the details about when this 2,300 days would transpire. And the reason is because we read last night that Daniel, after he heard this and the angel starts explaining it, it says that Daniel, he did what? He, he fainted. 
We learned yesterday that Daniel was probably in his 80s. Any news about the sanctuary would have caused a Jew to get excited because they want the temple to be rebuilt. It's the centerpiece of their religion. Does that make sense? So Daniel was unlike, you know, was just like any other Jew. I'm sure he got excited at the thought of, you know, the sanctuary being, you know, rekindled and the services and so forth. But once that news came, the Bible says Daniel fainted and he didn't understand what the angel wanted to explain. But God never leaves anything unfinished because the Bible tells us that in Daniel 9, the angel that came to him in Daniel 8 comes right back. Here's what it says, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the what? The vision. So if you read Daniel 9, there's actually no vision given up, up to chapter, up to verse 21. There's no vision given. Clearly, Daniel 9 is referring to the vision that Daniel didn't understand in chapter 8. And so the Bible says, Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and, and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel... I have now come forth to give you, what two things? Skill and what else? Wait a minute. If there was no vision in chapter 9, what would he need understanding about? Oh, wait. There was a vision in chapter 8 that Daniel clearly said I, after I rose up and I did the king's business, but I didn't understand the vision. This is talking again about those 2,300 days till the sanctuary is cleansed. Now, before I read this rest of this to you, I got to just give you a little, like, a, a warning. This part of the presentation is going to deal with numbers. And I've learned from experience that numbers sometimes can scare people. And if you're feeling a little bit sleepy, you would not in any way offend me if you decided that you needed to, you know, like, get some water or whatever. Because if you lose track of what I'm saying here, you'll wake up and you'll be like, what just happened, you know? <laughs> So here is where I'm going to ask you to look closely at what we're about to discuss because we're going to do some adding and subtracting, and we're going to talk about numbers here. So here's what the Bible says. How many weeks? Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So there's three things that I want to point out. If I ask you how long is the time prophecy that the angel Gabriel comes to explain, you would say it's how long? Seventy weeks. That just says it right there. Number two, there's a word there called determined. And that word determined in the original Hebrew, it's from a Hebrew word, hatach. I'm not saying it right, but it's a very guttural sound. But that word hatach, it actually means set apart or cut off from. So do you understand that the angel is saying that these 70 weeks are cut off from a larger time period? But there's one more point that I need to ask you to look at, and it's in the verse. Who are the 70 weeks specifically for? Who are they specifically for? Just for the Jews. Because remember, Gabriel is speaking to who? Daniel. And Daniel is a Jew, right? So he's from the tribe of Judah. And I'm just making this because I want everybody to be exactly clear. So 70 weeks of this prophecy are cut off from a longer prophecy. And they are cut off just for what group of people? The Jews. There it is. It's all there on the screen. Let's keep looking. It says, oh, one more thing that I have to make note of. When you study time prophecies in the Bible, very often, and with Daniel, this is also very clear, the time, do you notice that in these prophecies that we've been studying, the symbolism is not literal, right? When we talk about a ram and a goat, God, doesn't, God is not trying to teach us about animal husbandry. He's talking about symbols of nations. Does that make sense? In the same way, when we talk about these time periods in those same prophecies, the time periods are not literal. And if you knew Hebrew, there would be a clue. Because when it says in Daniel 9, verse 24, 70 weeks, in the original language, it actually says 70 weeks of years. That's in the original language. So the, the period of time that we are talking about is not a literal time period. And if you go through scripture, you will find a number of instances where God tells his people to do something, and then that period of time is 
is transposed to a longer period. I'm going to give you three examples. Um, you remember when God sent, told Moses to send spies into the land of Canaan? Do you remember this? So do you remember, does anybody know how long did they go into the land of Canaan? Does anybody know? 40 days. So they go into the land for 40 days. They spy it out. They come back. Ten of them say, there is no way. And two of them say, no, this can work. We can do this. And so God did 10 convince everybody else, and God is displeased. So you know what he said to them? He said, you guys aren't going to go in. You're going to wander for 40, how long? Years. And God specifically says this in Numbers 14.34. He says, I have appointed each day for a year. Now, there's another place. If you go to the story of Jacob in the Bible, you will remember that Jacob got, uh, he wanted to marry a girl. The dad made him marry another girl instead. And then the, the, uh, the, the father-in-law said, look, you can't do this in our country. But he said, fulfill her week and you can marry my second daughter. Now, it's interesting because Abraham, I'm sorry, not Abraham, Jacob served Laban for seven more years, not days. Now, the uncle said, you know, he said, fulfill her week. But then the Bible tells us that he worked seven more years. Now, in what, the verse we're reading right now, God told the prophet Ezekiel, he said, look, I'm going to ask you to bear the iniquity of the house of Judah, and I want you to lie on one side, and then I want you to lie on the other side, and for every day that you do this, it's going to symbolize one what? Year. Now, don't do this everywhere, but wherever there is a symbolic time prophecy, and Daniel literally, I'm going to show you in just a moment, cannot be understood without this little key. Daniel's time periods are definitely prophetic. They are couched in prophetic time. So if, we, if the Bible says after 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, if one day equals one year, that's talking about 2,300 what? Years. Now, let's, let's review something. The prophecy that we're cutting off is how long in total again? 70 weeks. 70 weeks, right? How do you convert 70 weeks to days? You multiply 70 by what? Seven. How many days there are in a week, right? So that's why you get 490 what? Days. But in Bible prophecy, one day equals one year. So in essence, we are cutting off 490 years from a longer time prophecy of 2300. Now, the thing that we have to understand in order to find out when this all begins is we have to find out when do we start counting these 490 years? Well, the Bible doesn't leave us to guess. It says in Daniel 9 verse 25, know therefore and understand that, what's the next word there? From. So this is like if you're giving someone directions, you say, how do you get to Walmart from here? Well, you start here. Okay, so from, this is the marker, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build what city? Jerusalem. By the way, do you think Daniel was excited? Yeah, I'm sure Daniel was thrilled. Guess what? There's going to be a commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. So that's the starting point from that command. Unto, now that's older language, but do you see that unto is basically like saying to. So you have two markers, from, and what's the from point? From the decree to restore and build what city? Jerusalem. And then two, that's the next marker in the, in the timeline, to what event? Messiah. So please note this. These are the two waypoints that are going to be our guide here. It says, from the decree to restore and build Jerusalem. So I'm going to give you a little history. There were three kings that gave a decree to restore Jerusalem. Their names were Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. But the prophecy was very specific. It said... The decree to not just restore, I'm sorry, not to rebuild, but to restore it as well. Of those three kings, only one gave the people the ability to govern themselves. He was the only king that restored their autonomy to rule and to even in inflict capital punishment on people that violated their laws. That was Artaxerxes. And you can read the record of that if you're watching and if you're taking notes. The record of that is found in the book of Ezra, and it's found in chapter 7. It starts around verse 11. And if you read down, that's the entire decree. And that's actually written in another language in the Bible in Aramaic. But now, the Bible says that from the decree to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, it says that it would be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Now, I didn't put this on the screen, but I'm going to ask you to just count with me. 
Seven weeks, how much is a score? 20. So what's three score? 60. So three score and two is how much? 62. So seven weeks plus three score and two weeks is how much? It's 69 weeks. Okay, so let's review something. How long was the original time prophecy? 70 weeks. And from out of those 70 weeks, to get from the decree to restore and build Jerusalem to get to the Messiah, how many of those 70 weeks have we used up? 69. Are we together so far? Not too hard to understand. So this is the time period that we're looking at. We have 70 weeks in total. We're starting from the decree to restore and build Jerusalem. That decree that we understand restored and rebuilt it was given by Artaxerxes. It was given in the seventh year of his reign. And we know from history that it was in the year 457 BC. Now, if you're watching this, if you're sitting here tonight, it, the first question that can get raised is, how do we know that you're right? I mean, you could have just plucked that date out of thin air. So look, there's a couple of ways that we can do this. Um, first of all, when the Bible says the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes, thankfully, thankfully, the Greeks and the Persians were terrible enemies. They hated each other. And you know why I say thankfully? Do you know that we have something in our modern era that is still a legacy from the ancient Greeks? I'm going to give you a clue. It has five circles that are all interconnected. What do we call that? The Olympics, right? The Olympics. Did you know that the Olympics go back all the way back to the time of the ancient Persians and the Greeks? I don't know if you know that. The Greeks started the Olympiad over a thousand years ago, okay? So it's a long time ago, right? But what's important to note is that when there were significant events, and by the way, when they did the Olympiads, they recorded who won, you know, what, they did that stuff. But you know what they also recorded? They recorded, oh, we had a battle with this king and he died. And they recorded the death of Artaxerxes' father. And the reason why that's important is when Artaxerxes' father was killed in battle, Artaxerxes began to rule. And because of the Olympics, we can count when the seventh year of his reign is. Does that make sense? But I'm going to show you that even if you didn't know anything about ancient history, even if you didn't know about the chronology of these kings in the book of Ezra, there's really another way that you can confirm what the Bible is talking about. And I'm going to show that to you in just a moment here. So what do we have? We have a total of 70 weeks to go from the decree to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, how many of those 70 weeks do we use? 69. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to do some math. If one day equals from the time of the Messiah to the end of the 70 weeks, how many more years will there be? Seven. You said it. There will be only seven years. So in case someone's following this online and you're not getting what I just said, let me say it one more time. If you start from the decree to restore and build Jerusalem, and you get to the Messiah, you've used up 69 weeks. That only leaves one prophetic week left. But in literal time, that is seven years from the end of the decree, or sorry, to the, from, the, from the time of the Messiah to the end of the 70-week prophecy. So that means that that would end in the year AD 34. And tonight what I want to do for you is I want to explain to you what happens during this period. First of all, at the end of the 70 weeks, the Jews no longer were counted as God's chosen people. This is going to shock some of you, but you can check my facts on this because when you read Galatians, this is what Paul said. He said, if you are Christ's, then you are what? Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, this is going to sound strange, but according to the New Testament, after the year AD 34, if you accepted Christ as your Savior, then all the promises made in the Old Testament to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all now go to you, okay? And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense because Abraham was chosen because of his faith, and if we have the faith of Abraham, then we are also counted as his seed. Does that make sense? That's why Romans says this, for he is not a Jew which is one, which way? Outwardly. And, I, you know, I, I'm not disparaging Jews. Um, if you notice that you can see and, and, and you can tell, I went to a beach in New Jersey not that long ago, and 
wonderful people. They typically dress in black. They wear a hat. If you notice, they have like beards that go, you know, pretty long. And these are considered Orthodox Jews. But the Bible says, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one where? Inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart. So what is this saying? The Bible is trying to tell us, let me back up here, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. What does that mean? Really, in essence, what it's saying, and this has always been true, God doesn't care about who your father was, who your grandfather was. What God cares about is, do you have faith? Does that make sense? Do you believe in my promises? Do you believe in my son for the forgiveness of sins? So, from the time period, and don't miss this, from the time that God cut off this time period just for what group of people? The Jews, the 70 weeks, we start from the decree to restore and build Jerusalem, and we come all the way down to the year AD 34. And you might be wondering, what happened in the year AD 34? Well, some of you know this. Paul began his uh, very malicious persecution of the Christians. And because of that persecution, it was Saul at the time, but he later became Paul. The gospel was propagated into where? All the world. Like, for basically after Jesus' death, for three and a half years, the disciples stayed and they tarried in Jerusalem. But when Paul started persecuting them, guess what? They, they scattered abroad to the four corners of the globe, and that's really when the gospel went everywhere. And fittingly so, because at that point now, the Jews were no longer God's chosen people. Now, please look closely. After 62 weeks, Messiah shall be what? Cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, I want to make a point here that's important because... The Bible distinguishes this time period like this. It says seven weeks, and then three score, and then two weeks. So there's this distinction. And the reason why there's a distinction is this. When you read Daniel 9, verse 25, it says that the streets and the walls would be built again, even in troublous times. From the decree to restore and build Jerusalem, exactly seven weeks or 49 years later in 508, the entire walls and the city of Jerusalem were restored, that work was done by Ezra and Nehemiah. So that part of the prophecy was fulfilled. And so now the Bible tells us that after 62 weeks, it says Messiah shall be cut off. Now, I'm going to see if I can explain this because, um, well, let's, let's look at this with, with, with a little more detail. It says, then he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now, let, let's review something. How long was the total prophecy again? 70 weeks. To get to the Messiah, how many weeks did you have to use? 69. How many weeks does that leave? One. And notice what it says about this one week. In the when of the week? The middle. So let's, let me ask you a question. If you start at the beginning of the week and you want to get to the middle of the week, how many days does it take? Three and a half. Okay. By the way, if one day equals one year, how, many, how much literal time is that? Three and a half years. Okay. So please make this note in your mind. Jesus, according to Luke 3, was baptized in the fall of A.D. 27. In the fall of A.D. 27, Jesus was baptized. If I go three and a half years from that point, if I go three and a half years, what year will it be and what season will it be? It will be the spring of 31 A.D. And the Bible said that in that point, the Messiah would be what? cut off. So you know what's interesting is that when you do the historical record of when Jesus died, he died in 31 AD. And he died in the spring, right according to the festival of the Passover. He died right on time. Now, why is that important? Because there's two things that this does. Number one, it establishes the fact that Jesus is the Messiah predicted in prophecy. Can you say amen to that? Um, and I need to point this out because this, the book of Daniel was written literally 600 years before Jesus came to this world. And 600 years before Jesus came, the Bible predicted when he would begin his public ministry, which was when he was baptized. It predicted when he would die. And you know, if you get any other date than 457 BC, remember I told you earlier, how do you know that this date is right? 
if you pick any other date, Jesus won't be baptized on time and he won't die on time. Does that make sense? So it's, it's another way to confirm, you know, how we know this is right. So in the middle of the week, he causes the sacrifices to cease. And tonight's topic is really focusing on, well, when does this final judgment begin? Well, we learned that we cut off those 2,300 days with this 490 years. So if you cut off this period from this longer time prophecy, um, you literally end this 2,300 days in the year 1844. We'll talk about this date a little bit more in the seminar in an upcoming night. But tonight I want to cover with you how the Bible describes the culmination of this event. So when the judgment begins, what does it look like? The Bible says, I beheld the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The what, everybody? The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like unto the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they, did brought, and they brought him near before him. And then the Bible tells us, and there was given him a what? Dominion and a glory and a what? Kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Now, I want you to know that Daniel predicts this as being in the future, but Revelation sees it, and it uh, it, it writes in language that helps us understand that this is about to happen. Jesus said in Revelation 22, verse 12, Behold, I come quickly, and my what? Reward is with me to give every man according as his what? Now, I'm going to just point something out. Jesus here is referring to a second coming. Does it make sense that if Jesus comes with his reward to give every man, does it make sense that it must have been determined beforehand what reward he would give people. Does that make sense? That's the work that is going on in heaven right now, or what we call the divine judgment. I want to read to you how Revelation describes the, in the beginning of this. It says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting what? Gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. Why? For the hour of his what? Judgment is come. It doesn't say it will come or it has come. It says is come in the present tense. Friends, this message is a message telling the inhabitants of the world that we are living in the time of the final judgment. Now, tonight it's not my burden to try to scare you because as I said to you earlier, the judgment is not about you've done 3 million and 714 good deeds, but you've done 9,275,423 bad deeds. Like, that's not what the judgment is about, right? We learned that just from one sin, a person is worthy of the penalty of death. But we have this beautiful promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all what? Unrighteousness. God promises that if we would give him our sins, just like in ancient Israel, if they confessed their sins on the substitute, if that substitute was atoned for in the sanctuary, then the sinner was pardoned, he was forgiven, and his sins were ultimately blotted out. Does that make sense? And so how do we in this time, how do we make it through the judgment? There is a heavenly judgment going on, but how do we make it through? It's very simple. And I love God's mercy in this because, you know, the Bible teaches that God only holds us accountable for what we know. Uh, there's multiple places that you can read about this. Deuteronomy 139, uh, John chapter 9, verse, I think, 55, John 15, 22. There's several places where the Bible teaches this principle. But make no mistake, if God only judges us based on what we know, as you sit here tonight, if you have confessed all of your known sins, what do I mean by that? Well, hopefully you don't have a photographic memory that recalls everything you've ever done. But if you have a mind that, you know, you know what you've done wrong and everything that you've done, if you've asked God to forgive you for that, do you know that in the books of heaven, God takes the blood of Jesus 
and He applies that right over your name and your sins. Now, let's review something we learned. What's special about the blood? The life of the flesh is where? In the blood. So when God applies the blood of Jesus to your sins, when God looks at the sin, he doesn't see it anymore. Why? Because the blood is there, right? The blood is there. And that blood is a symbol for whose life? Whose blood is it? It's Jesus' blood, right? So when God sees that, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the life of Jesus. What kind of life did Jesus live? A perfect life. I know this is going to sound strange, but this is gospel truth. If you have confessed all of your known sins in the eyes of heaven, because Jesus' blood stands in your account, it is as though you have not sinned. Can someone say amen, hallelujah to that? That's, that's a reassuring thing. And folks, you can't make it through the judgment by thinking, you know, if I pay more money for it. No. If Jesus stands for you, then you can face the judgment with confidence. Can you say amen to that? I want to challenge you tonight, if it's your desire to say, Lord, I want you to represent me in the judgment. I want to give you my sins. I want you to take my case. I want you to stand as my attorney in the judgment. Could I just ask you to raise your hand and say, Lord, that's my desire tonight. God bless each of you. And as we close tonight with prayer, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we've looked at a topic tonight that I know it's, it spans several chapters in the book of Daniel and Revelation. But in the essence of it all, we want Jesus to be our attorney. We want Jesus to take our sins. We want Jesus' to, Jesus blood to stand on our account. Lord, you saw the hands that were raised even for those that are watching, for every heart that desires this, Lord, may it be fulfilled to them as we bring our sins to you and accept the forgiveness that Jesus provides. And Lord, when this final judgment closes, when the, the books of heaven, the sins are blotted out, may we be among that number that will be counted as your people, as part of your kingdom, not because of any good that we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.